Amen, amen, amen. Good to see you all. Good morning. How are you doing today? Good. My name is Vince, one of the pastors here at High Point Church. Great to see you all. Thanks for coming. We are glad that you are here. Before we jump into the passage of the Bible that we're going to be looking at today, I want to share just a little bit of something that I've been learning personally because it ties right into what we're going to see in this passage, and I think it helps just frame the whole morning. So last Thursday, <clears throat> I was having some time with the Lord, reading the Bible, praying, and I had a really good one, a really good time with the Lord. You know, sometimes you feel like you're kind of just praying to the ceiling or just going through the motions. This one, I got emotional. I was weeping. Don't let that make you think I'm some super spiritual person, but it was just one of those really special times. And the reason for it was I realized it has been 10 years that I've been walking with Jesus. Isn't that crazy? I didn't even realize. I started walking with Jesus in 2009. It's 2019. It's been 10 years. It just crept up on me, and I was like, whoa. And I started thinking about all that God has done in my life over the last 10 years. 10 years ago, I was trying to make it as a professional musician. I was failing terribly in that process. I was sexually addicted. I had issues with alcohol. I didn't know who I was. I didn't know where I was going. Tons of pride, tons of insecurity, just a total mess. And God picked me up, turned me, set me on the path, and a whole bunch in my life changed right then. But then I kept thinking, and I realized that process of him showing me my junk and helping me overcome it didn't stop right at the beginning. It kept going a few years in, and I thought of stuff I had to work through a few years in, and then I thought, man, five years ago I was still working through stuff. And man, just over the last few years, I feel like I've already changed a whole lot and become in a lot of ways a different person just the last few years. And I was thinking about all these ways that God has helped me overcome my junk and my sin, and I felt so grateful. I felt so thankful. I was like, God has been so good to me. So good. Praise God. Hallelujah. And I'm, you know, I'm crying and getting all emotional. <laughs> Whatever. But then I realized that when I see sin in me now, when I see stuff in me now that needs to get worked through, rather than saying, thanks be to God, he's about to do what he's been doing the last 10 years of my life, I fight him on it. I'm like, I don't want you to deal with that. I don't want you to come change this thing. Sometimes it's because it's just pride. I'm like, I just want to be a finished product. You've been working on me for 10 years. Aren't you done yet? Or I feel like maybe this will be the one time that he's finally like, okay, you should have figured this out on your own. I'm done with you. Or maybe I'll bring it to him and I won't know exactly what steps to take and it won't really work, you know, and I'll stay stuck in whatever the thing I feel like I'm stuck in is. Or sometimes I worry I'll bring it to him and it will work because I don't want to let go of that thing. It makes no sense. What I'm most grateful for over the last 10 years of my life, I don't want more of in the future. You see what I'm saying? It's crazy. But I've seen this as I've been realizing that in me, and maybe that sounds super obvious. As I've been seeing it in me, I've been seeing it in my friends, people all around me, people that don't know Jesus. Some of them will say, 
I know if I become a Christian, God's going to like have to do all this work in me. And I'm like, but you already say you want to like become a better person. And they're like, yeah, but I don't want God to do it. Like, why? Why? There's just this feeling of like, I don't want God to work. And then I see this in brand new Christians. They were far from God. They come into a relationship with God. A whole bunch of stuff gets fixed really quick. Like maybe 50% of what they feel like their struggle has been. And they're like, yeah, thank you, God. Thank you for helping me overcome this stuff. My life is so much better. But then they're left with the other 50%. And rather than saying, thank you, God, for helping me overcome this first 50%, I'm just going to go forward confidently and looking and asking you to deal with the next 50%. They say, oh, I'm just going to keep this to myself, or I'm going to try and work on it myself, or I'm trying to stuff it down and bury it. And then I see it with long-term Christians. I don't know if 10 years is long enough to be considered myself a long-term Christian. There's people who have been walking with Jesus a whole lot longer than me, but I've seen this in me and I've seen this in other people who have been down the path for a long time that, you know, we kind of work through some of the more obvious surface-level sins like addiction or your marriage is falling apart or your, you know, whatever, but we've got pride, we've got greed, where there's subtle ways we put other people down to try to lift ourselves up, we lord it over people, we think we're better than people, all these different ways um, more subtle, sophisticated sins, and we're just as aware of them as the alcoholic is aware of his alcohol addiction. But the same way we can look back on our life and go, man, Jesus helped me work through all these things. When we see the stuff that needs to change now, we go, I don't want help with it. I don't want to help with it. I'm just going to keep it to myself. I'm going to bury it. I'm going to try to work on it myself. Whatever. And what I've been learning, and what I hope that you all walk away with today, and what I think we see right on the surface of this passage is this. We all need to let Jesus do what he came to do. We need to let him do what he came to do. Look what Jesus says when he describes his own mission statement. If you're a business guy, this is Jesus' mission statement, vision statement, purpose statement, whatever you want to call it. This is Jesus talking about himself, and this is a little preview of the end of the story that we're about to see this morning. Jesus says, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. That means, firstly, that if you're here today and you're not a Christian, in a way, Jesus' eyes are on you as someone who doesn't know him than on me as someone who does know him. He is always looking for the person who doesn't yet have a relationship with God. He came to seek and save the lost. But that dynamic doesn't change after we become Christians, right? The Holy Spirit come and, comes and lives in us, and we try to learn to walk in the Spirit, not walk in the flesh. We try to embody the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. He's always drawing us out of darkness and into light. We're always working on becoming substantive, oaks of righteousness, all of these things. This mission statement doesn't change once we become Christians. Jesus is always looking for what is lost in us, what is broken in us, what is still sinful in us, and that's what he came for. I want to become the kind of person that rather than saying, okay, I've changed so much in 10 years, I hope I'm done now. I want to become the kind of person that says, I've changed so much in the last 10 years, I hope God turns up the gas. I hope he changes me more in the next 10 years than he did the previous 10 years. Why would I want less of that? Why would I want less of what I'm most grateful for? Do I think I'm as righteous as Jesus now? Do I think, you know, in this moment, okay, 32, I'm done. 
The path is over. I'm a, I'm a finished product. No, I want to keep changing as fast as God can possibly change me through my 30s and my 40s and my 50s and my 60s because that's what he came to do. Amen, right? Can you, can you imagine if we all took this attitude that we said, I don't want to try to just live up to some minimum change that God might want to do in my life. I want him to do all he can possibly do as fast as he can possibly do it because that is what he came for. Let him do what he came to do. Embrace the process. Don't resent it. Don't resist it. Say yes to it right now. So we're going to look at this passage where Jesus does this and he models it and he models it on a guy named Zacchaeus. And as we look at it, we're going to talk through and see in the text some reasons why we should say yes to this. More than what I just said. Maybe some of you are like, yeah, 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 I want that. Well, we're going to see some more reasons why you should say yes to letting Jesus do in you what he came to do. Let, it, let yourself embrace the process and all of that. So we're going to look at some reasons why, and then we're going to talk about some objections that some of you might have or some thoughts you might have that have kept you back from this. We're going to address those, and then we're going to talk about some real practical application. That might sound like a lot to cover. This is going to be a normal-length sermon, just so you know. Don't get nervous. You're like, oh, gosh, here we go. Okay. Let me pray really quick, and then we're going to jump in. God, I thank you for everybody here. God, I thank you that you are filled with love for sinful people. You are filled with love despite all that we wish was different. And God, I ask you to open our hearts to hear your word this morning. In Jesus' name, everybody said? Amen. Amen. All right. If you have a Bible from the pew, open to page 1598. That is the story we're going to be looking at today. This is in Luke 19, verse 1 through 10, if you have your own Bible or you want to look it up on your phone. This is the story of Zacchaeus. It, at, um, at this point in Jesus' journey, he's coming to the tail end of his path before he gets to the cross. So he is heading to Jerusalem where the trial is going to happen, where he's going to be convicted and hung on a cross. And on his way to Jerusalem, he has to pass through a city called Jericho. And in Jericho, he meets this guy, named Zacchaeus. Now, Zacchaeus is one of the most famous people in the Bible, largely because there is a children's song written about him, used in Sunday school across the world. Zacchaeus was a wee little man. Yep, yeah, that's right. <laughs> if you didn't grow up in church, that's not one of the things you have to feel bad about missing. <laughs> that song. But Zacchaeus is this short, short little guy. Nick was like, are you going to make some joke about, you know, the kid's pastor preaching the most famous kid's story in the Bible? And I was like, well, I could. Or I could make a joke about the story of the wee little man being preached by a wee little man. <laughs> right? If you're, did someone just say amen to that? <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, if you're watching this later online, um, Height is not one of the many blessings God has given in my life. <laughs> so Jesus is going to Jerusalem. He passes through Jericho. Look at the reasons why we should say yes 
to letting him do what he came to do. Look at why we should say yes to him working in our hearts and lives continually. Why we should say yes to this process. Here's what happens. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. Now, for those of you who have heard this before, you got to understand the kind of person Zacchaeus was. They're like the kinds of broken people that we expect Jesus to go to. You know, the, the poor, the needy, the prostitutes, the, the broken people. Those are stereotypically kinds of people that we often see Jesus going to reach, to, reach out to. This was not that kind of guy. This is the kind of guy that I think at the time people would expect Jesus would stay far away from. Here's why. Zacchaeus is a grade A oppressor of broken people, of hurting people. Tax collectors, their job, that's what Zacchaeus was, their job was to collect taxes for the Roman government, and the way they made a salary was by charging the people more than the tax required. There's nothing inherently wrong with that system, assuming it's regulated and there's like a set amount that the tax collector is going to charge on top of the Roman tax. But it was not that way, and tax collectors would charge on top of the Roman tax whatever they could possibly add to make themselves as wealthy as they possibly could be, and they used fear and intimidation and manipulation to get people to pay these taxes because they had the stamp of approval of the Roman government. Now, Zacchaeus, this is the only person like this with this title in the Bible. He's a chief tax collector. And that means one of two things. Historians are not sure exactly what it means, but it either means that he was the best tax collector or he was the boss of all the tax collectors. So if he was the best tax collector, that means he is better at getting people to pay more than they need to than anybody else. He's the best at manipulating. He's the best at extorting. He's the best at oppressing. He is talented in the things that God hates. Or it means he was the boss of all the tax collectors, which means he got wealthy skimming off the top of what all the tax collectors were making. So the tax collectors are like, okay, I got to get 50 bucks out of this guy, and then I'm going to take 50 bucks on top of that for me. And now I also got to get 50 bucks for Zacchaeus. So he's got his thumb potentially on all of these other tax collectors. This is not a good guy. This is not the kind of guy, this is not like, okay, I graduated college and I'm going to go start a ministry to serve the chief tax collectors of the world. People are like, what are you doing? Why would you do that? These are not the needy. These are not the broken. On top of that, Zacchaeus is Jewish. Zacchaeus is a Jewish name. So he already has access to the New Testament, which means he knows better. He knows better. Now, as we're about to see, out of all the people Jesus could have gone to in this town, who does he go to? Zacchaeus. This is the only person that he pursues to have a special relationship on this part of the journey. Why? Here's what we learn, and here's why you should say yes to letting Jesus do in you what he came to do, because he is drawn to what no one else will deal with. Jesus is drawn to what no one else will deal with. Why is that important? Because your sin, the thing when you think, what do I really need to work through? It always, for all of us, 
it feels like it's in that Zacchaeus brand of sin. You tracking with me? Meaning, if you struggle with pride and you've got a friend who struggles with lust, it's easy for you to say, Jesus forgives. He loves. Dude, your lust thing, no problem. He's going to forgive you for that and he's going to work through that. But then you think, well, pride, pride is, you know, the one thing that makes me stand against God and there's no way God's going to be me in this. Whatever we struggle with always feels like the one thing that is, can't be forgiven or can't be met in by Jesus. That's how we intuitively feel about it. What this story is showing us is that Zacchaeus was worse than any of us, and Jesus was drawn to him. Jesus is drawn to the things that no one else will deal with. A few years back, I was um, trying to get into running. I am not a natural athlete. I have friends in high school who would make friends. I mean, they were friends, but they would make me run just so they could laugh at my run. Like, Vince, run down the street. And they'd be like, ah! <coughs> it's fine. It was fine. No trauma. It's fine. <laughs> but a few years ago, I was like, I'm going to start running. I'm going to start exercising. So somebody told me to go to one of those places where you run on the treadmill and somebody who's like an expert watches you run, watches your stride, and then gives you the kind of shoes that are going to be the best for your running. Anyone know what I'm talking about? I've never heard of this kind of thing before, but somebody told me to do it, and for whatever reason, I was like, that's what I need to do. So I'm there. I go in. I'm on the treadmill, you know, doing my run. And the lady is literally like this. And I'm getting embarrassed. I'm like, uh, flashbacks, you know, of high school. Ah! Then she goes, Cindy, Cindy, come over here. Come look at this guy. And I'm like, oh, no. But they were so into it. They were like, man, this is like the worst, weirdest running I've ever seen. What can we do? Because they were going to, they knew that they were going to look good if they could find something that worked for me. Does that make sense? See, Jesus is drawn to what no one else will deal with because he knows that he looks good when he fixes the things that we feel most broken about. The things that we feel are hardest and God would never want to meet us in. Jesus is drawn to them because he looks good when he fixes the worst of humanity. That's why the Apostle Paul said, Jesus saved me to make an example of me because I, the worst of sinners, was knocked off my horse, met by Jesus, so that everybody else would say, well, if Jesus can deal with that guy, I think Jesus can deal with me. The same thing is true for you. The part of you that feels like the hardest to give over to God, the hardest to let him be in control of, the hardest to let him work on, the part of you that you're like, I don't want to show that to anybody. I don't even want to face it myself. I don't want anybody to know that. That is where Jesus is drawn to. That's where he's trying to get to. That's the part of your life that he wants access to. He's trying to get in the nitty-gritty, the part that you're like, I don't want anybody to see this. He says, this is where I want to work. Let him do what he came to do. Let him do what he came to do. Because there is no shame that he cannot undo. There is no guilt that he cannot erase and wipe away. This is what he's about. That's reason number one. Continue on with the story. He, that's Zacchaeus, wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. Again, I empathize. I empathize. 
So he sees Jesus walking. There's a crowd of people around him. So Jesus is like shuffling down the road, right, with this crowd of people around him. Zacchaeus sees him from afar, and here's what happens. So he ran ahead, climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. Here's a picture of a sycamore fig tree. As you can see, it's pretty easy to climb. Um, There's a path here, and this is actually the exact sycamore fig tree that Zacchaeus climbed up. I'm just kidding. That's not true. That's not true. How would you know? How would anyone know? But this might have been kind of what it looked like. There's this path here, and Jesus is shuffling down it with the people around him. And then meanwhile, Zacchaeus has climbed up here, and he's reaching down, trying to get Jesus' attention. Maybe you're just trying to get a look, and here's what happens next. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up. Now remember, he is going to Jerusalem He is going to the cross. We know from Jesus in the garden that he did not go to the cross easily. He sweat drops of blood. He was filled with with distress knowing the agony he was about to suffer. So with this all in his mind, Jesus stops and looks up at this guy who no one would ever want to deal with. What do we learn from this? Jesus is not busy and he's not bothered. If there ever was a time where Jesus was too busy to deal with someone, where he would have been too bothered to come help somebody, this would have been the moment. But when he sees Zacchaeus, he stops what he's doing, he pauses on the path, and he reaches out to this guy. The same thing is true for me and you. When we see our sin, when we see our struggle, there is a part, I think, for all of us, that says, does God really have time for this? Now I know if you're a parent, when your kids ask you, how can God talk, like, hear all the prayers of all the people in the world? You tell them, you know, God is infinite and, and he can deal with all that easily. He is all-powerful and all-knowing. And you tell your kids that and you might have, remember, if you're not a parent, you maybe remember being a kid and asking your parents that, the moment where you're like, whoa, that's amazing. But is it possible that we didn't let that, that truth get all the way in? Is it possible that when you are so busied, when you are so busy, you are so bothered, when everyone wants your attention, when everyone is texting you, when everybody is trying to connect with you, when your kids are clinging to you, when your spouse wants attention, that you assume maybe God is kind of this way too. And that when you've reached out to other people and asked them for help and talked to somebody and you can just tell from their body language that they're busy and they're bothered and that they don't have time for you, is it possible that we have projected that onto God? I know that I do that. Here's the truth. If you have ever subtly, subconsciously said to yourself, this isn't worth praying about, that is a statement about your perception of God being busy. There's no worth praying about or not worth praying about. Jesus is infinite. He is infinitely interested. And he is especially interested in the places where you will let him do what he came to do. So in whatever your struggle is, whatever you've been dealing with, whatever you've been trying to overcome, God is available. He is completely eager to stop, look up at you in the tree, and meet you in that moment. He's not busy. He's not bothered. Let's keep going. 
When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. So Jesus walks up to the tree, sees Zacchaeus hanging out up there, and he doesn't have a conversation right then. He says, Zacchaeus, come on down. I'm coming over. Invites himself in. And Zacchaeus says, great. What do we learn from this? Jesus knows what you need next. Was it the right decision for Zacchaeus to climb the tree? Absolutely. That was his path to get close to Jesus. Now, don't you think part of Zacchaeus, as he's perched up there, is like, what now? What do I do now? And if Jesus had just started a conversation with Zacchaeus in the tree and Jesus on the ground, I think Zacchaeus would have gone right along with it. But Jesus knew that Zacchaeus needed to come down and get face-to-face -face with him in Zacchaeus' own home, across Zacchaeus' own dinner table. Jesus knew what Zacchaeus needed next. Here's how that relates to me and you. Likely, the stuff that you feel stuck in, you've tried some things to work through it. You've tried some things to overcome it. You haven't just totally ignored it. You've, you've talked to some people, or you've read the Bible, or you've prayed, or you've said, okay, how can I get through this? And you've tried some things. You've gone to the top of the tree, and then you're like, I don't know what to do next. And in the fear of not knowing what your next step is, you have closed your heart off to anticipating that God can actually take you out of that situation. If you don't know the clear next step to grow, so often we just give up on growing. And we're going to get real practical a little later about some ways that you can figure out what you might need to do as your next step, but here's what I'm saying to you right now. If you don't know what your next step is to grow, Jesus does. He knows what you need to do. He is not overwhelmed by the fact that you are up in a tree and you are out of options. He knows what you need to do next. He will lead you into it. He will be with you every step of the way. And don't let that keep you back from saying yes to Jesus. He knows what you need next. Last reason why you need to say yes to letting Jesus do what he came to do. Look what happens next. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. So Zacchaeus comes down, hangs with Jesus. They go into Zacchaeus' house, and the people see it happen, the crowd see it happen, and they say, Jesus is identifying with the worst person in our town. It would have been incredibly offensive for a Jewish rabbi to sit down and enter the house and and spend that amount of time with somebody who was clearly a sinner. That was like Jesus was putting his stamp of approval on Zacchaeus. So the people see this and they begin to mutter. Now, I don't know exactly how this happens. It may be that the crowds were so close to the house that Zacchaeus heard it happening, or they might have actually gone into like the courtyard. Maybe if it was a really big house, there was space in the front where they could just kind of stand around. But Zacchaeus hears them talking. I don't know how much time has gone by. It might be a few hours later, but Zacchaeus hears them talking, and here's what happens. But Zacchaeus stood up after he hears this muttering and said to the Lord, says to Jesus, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. I'm giving away half my stuff to people in need. And then he says, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. This is a complete 
turnaround. This is a complete transformation. The Jewish law would not have required Zacchaeus in this particular situation to pay back four times what he had stolen from people. Maybe give back equally or plus 20% or double probably at the most extreme from what I researched, but not four times. This is a total transformation, a total heart change. This is Zacchaeus' moment of salvation. And here's what Jesus says. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. Jesus speaks now to the crowds and says, this person that is Jewish, that you say he's not one of us because of how bad he is and how bad he's treating us, Jesus says, you're wrong. This man is a son of Abraham just like you, just like me. He says, for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Now, what do we learn from this? Jesus approves before he improves. Catchy, right? Jesus approves before he improves. What order was these events in? Did Jesus walk up to the tree and say, okay, Zacchaeus, give away half your stuff, pay back everybody four times, and then I'm going to come over? Is that what he did? No. He said, I am going to approve of you, and then we're going to work on some stuff. That does not mean Jesus approved of his actions. Clearly it doesn't mean he approved of his actions, because once Zacchaeus actually changes, that's when he says, today salvation has come to this house. But he approves of a relationship with him. He approves of him as a person before any of that change happens. This is critical. I don't care if you're a brand new Christian. I don't care if you've been walking with Jesus for a long time. But there is a part of us that when we see our sin, we feel like we are under God's curse until we fix it. You felt this. You feel like my relationship with God is broken until I fix this thing. I feel like I'm under God's curse. I felt this until I've overcome this thing. Remember what Jesus said earlier in his life and ministry. He said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. What Jesus is saying is that the moment you are aware of what needs to change in your life, and you can see where you want to be, and you can see that you're not there, and you say, oh no, I am not where I want to be. I wish I was there. In that moment, you are under the blessing of God. He doesn't say, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness and are filled. He says, blessed are those for who hunger and thirst for righteousness because they will be filled. The moment that you become aware of your sin, the moment that you become aware of something that needs to change, that is not the moment that you despair. That is the moment that you say, Jesus is working in me. He has brought this to my attention. I see where I want to be, and I am rejoicing because in this moment I am under God's blessing. Jesus is blessing me as he sees me hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Now, if you see your sin and you're like, I don't really care about that, this does not apply to you. Don't get confused on what I'm saying. But when you see what needs to change, and you say, I wish 
I hope that someday I'm there. You are blessed by God. Why? Because he approves of you, and then he improves of you. The moment you say, Jesus, I need forgiveness, you are forgiven. If you're not a Christian, you're adopted into his family. You receive the full acceptance of God, and it is in that place of complete acceptance that you change and you grow. Don't lose that dynamic 5, 10, 15, 20 years into the journey. You are still approved of by God before he improves you. Is this helpful? Think about, think about your heart right now. Think about the things that you say, I know this is off about how I live. I know this is off about how I think. I know this is off about how I spend my time. I know this is off about how I spend my money. I know this is off about how I treat my spouse. I know this is off about how I treat my coworkers. I know this stuff needs to change. Here's what you got to remember. Just let him do what he came to do. He is drawn to the things that you think no one would ever want to deal with. He is not busy. He's not too bothered to help you. He knows what you need next. And he approves of you right now, especially if you are willing to let him come work. Amen? Amen. Okay, so here's some things that you might be thinking as I'm saying this. And maybe you haven't thought these on the surface. But maybe once they go up there, you go, oh, yeah, that kind of makes sense. What about that? Some of us feel like, I don't want to bring my sin to Jesus because Jesus loves what's right and good. Jesus is perfect. Jesus is holy. How am I supposed to bring the worst of me to him? Now, I don't know what actually goes on in Jesus' heart when we bring him the worst. Like, I don't know what it feels like. Because that's true. He loves what is right and good. And he says, bring what's worst about you to me. But here's what I do know. In terms of how we live, there is no tension between our sin and Jesus' love for what is right and good. Let me explain to you what I mean. What's this guy? What's he doing? What's his job? What's he working on? He's working on a car, right? So imagine if your car broke down and you said, Oh, I really should bring my car to the mechanic, but I don't want to because mechanics love working cars. You see what I'm saying? It is because mechanics love working cars that you bring your broken car to the mechanic. What's her job? Doctor, right? You would never say, let me ask you this, do doctors love when people are well? Absolutely. They love when people are well and healthy. Would you ever say, I am bleeding out right now, but I don't want to go to the doctor because doctors love healthy people? No. It is because doctors love healthy people that we bring them our disease and our sickness and when we're bleeding all over the place. Look, this guy's so nice. Look at him. Who would ever say, my toilet is exploding all over the bathroom, but I can't call a plumber because plumber loves, plumbers love pipes that are working. You know what that guy would say if you said that to him? He'd probably just make that face. He'd be like, and he'd be like, what's wrong with you? What are you talking about? But this is exactly what we do to Jesus. Well, look at that. Woo, that's an intense picture. 
Your house is on fire. Do firefighters love when houses are on fire? No. Do they love it? No. Do they love putting out fires? Do they love houses that are not on fire? They love when houses are not on fire. But you would never say, my house is burning up, but I'm not calling the fire department because they love houses that are not on fire. No, it is because they love putting fires out quickly that you call them. We have to take the same mindset with Jesus. When we see the stuff in us that we know Jesus loves when it's gone, that is why we take it to him. That's why we take it to him. So there is no tension between your sin and Jesus' love for what is right and good. It is because we can confidently know Jesus came to take people from darkness to life that we Darkness to light, that we bring our stuff to him over and over and over again. Okay, second thing that might be in your head, and I have felt this many times. I know a lot of you have felt this as well. We have a hard time letting Jesus do what he came to do because when we see our sin, this is what we say, I feel so disconnected from God when I see my sin. What about that? What do I do about that? We say, I feel so far from God when I get mad at my kids. I feel so far from God when I um, get plastered over the weekend and then show up at church on Sunday morning. I feel so far from God when I've forgotten about Him and I haven't spent time with Him for weeks. I feel so far from God when I act out sexually. I feel so far from God when I cross a boundary with my significant other. I feel so far from God when I feel like I don't care about the people that I'm supposed to care about. I feel so far from God. What about that? So often when we feel far from God, our strategy is either, well, I need to try to drum up some emotion between me and God so I feel more connected, and then maybe out of that sense of emotional connection, my life will change. Or we say, I need to fix this issue, and after I fix it, then I will be available to emotionally connect with God. We go back and forth between these two things. Both of those strategies are totally wrong. Here's why. Intimacy with God, closeness with God, intimacy is found by letting Jesus do what he came to do, not after letting him do what he came to do. Let me say that again. It's kind of a long, long sentence. Intimacy is found with God, intimacy is found by letting Jesus do what he came to do, not after letting Jesus do what he came to do. So think about this. Zacchaeus, between the moment he changed at the end, gave all his stuff away, paid back all these people, between that moment and the moment that he was on the tree, what do we see in between? Intimacy with Jesus. Him sitting across the table from Jesus. It is whatever happened between those two moments is what changed Zacchaeus' heart. And it is in that same place that he found intimacy. Who's this? This is a lady named Marie Kondo. She has a show on Netflix called Tidying Up. It is a very popular show right now. I've only seen one episode. If you haven't seen it, here's how it works. Marie Kondo finds people who have messy homes. It's kind of like hoarder's light. So they've got, you know, stacks of paper from years that they've never gone through. 
but you know, it's, kind of, it's not terrible, but you're kind of like, oh, this house is messy. Or they've got like 100 pairs of shoes in a room. And she goes in there, and she's stoked to help them tidy up. And they're a little embarrassed, and they're like, yeah, we've kind of let things get out of control. And she goes, here's what we're going to do. We're going to find your shoes, and you're going to look through your shoes, and you're going to find ones that spark joy. She says, which shoes spark joy? And these people get all into it. They're like, this shoe sparks joy. <laughs> and she's like, okay, take that shoe and put it in the keep pile. Now I want you to find a shoe that doesn't spark joy. And they're like, this one doesn't. And then she says, okay, I want you to say goodbye to that shoe and thank it for how it served you. And people are like, thank you, shoe, for serving me. I release you now. And everyone's like, whoa. And it's a little creepy in some ways. But... But, like, you watch it, and you're like, I want to tidy up. We're going in our closet right now. We're going to figure this out. But here's the amazing thing. At the end of every episode, the people in the home and Marie Kondo are like best friends. They're hugging. They're high-fiving. They're like, yes, this is amazing. Why? Because they went through this process together of letting Marie Kondo tidy up their home. Do you see where I'm going with this? Can you imagine if Marie Kondo shows up at the messy home door, knocks on the door and says, I'm here to tidy up, and the person says, oh, no, 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 no. How about we just go do coffee? Leave my home alone. Let's go do coffee. And they sit down, and they get their Instagram out. They start taking pictures of the coffee and hanging out together, and they're like, can't we build a relationship this way? And Marie Kondo's like, I don't know, maybe. Then the next day she knocks on the door, I'm here to help you tidy up. And they're like, no, 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 no. Let's go, let's go eat some food at the restaurant. Sooner or later, Marie Kondo's going to be like, listen, I came to tidy up. So either you're going to let me tidy up or I'm going to go to the next house. I'm not literally saying Jesus will leave you if you don't let him tidy up right away. <laughs> but what I'm saying is in the process of letting Jesus come do the very thing he came to do. It is in that process that we grow in intimacy with him. It's not after. It's not before. It is in the process. If you feel disconnected from God, the path into intimacy is the exact same path as into the process of him letting, of you letting him work in your life you got to let him do what he came to do. If you want to be close with God, this is what you got to do. If you meet somebody who's like 40, 50, 60 years old and is deeply in love with Jesus, you are going to meet a person who has let Jesus do a lot of tidying up. You never meet somebody who's like, yeah, I've basically just kind of always had it together and it's all fine. You, you will meet somebody who says, you will not believe all that God has done in my life to change my heart, to free me from bondage, to get me out of stuff. And I'm not saying you have to have some dark past to be able to tell this story with Jesus. I'm saying we all have something that we can let him come in and work on. And if you're willing to come let him work on it, it is in that place that you will find intimacy with God. So let him do what he came to do. Here's some real practical application. I can't give you like completely specific, like go read this part of the Bible or talk to this pastor or 
see this counselor or anything like that because I don't know your situation. And everybody's situation is a little different. But here's some real practical application that hopefully gets you thinking about some steps that you can take. First, big picture, let your fascination be stronger than your fear. I don't know if Zacchaeus was afraid of meeting with Jesus, but there's a lot of reasons he should have been afraid, right? He was going to have to give up half his stuff. He's going to have to pay all these people back four times. For all of us, there is a certain fear of, if I let Jesus come in and do the thing that he wants to do in my life, I don't know what my life is going to look like afterwards. I don't know what I'm going to have to change. I don't know what I have to give up. But there is also a part of you that is fascinated by what it might look like. You know there is a version of you on the other side of letting Jesus come in and do his thing that you've never seen before. There's a version of you that you've never met. There's a person on the other side of letting Jesus work that you're fascinated by. And you're fascinated with just knowing Jesus better. So big picture, if you want to let Jesus do what he came to do, be fascinated by the fact that there's things you have no idea God might do in and through you through the process. Real practical though. First, run ahead of the crowd. Be willing to run ahead of the crowd. Remember Zacchaeus? All the crowd is crowded around Jesus. They're pressing against him. Does he try to fight his way through the crowd? No. He runs ahead. He takes his own strategy. Here's what I mean by that. Don't go with the flow. If you take your cues for how to grow spiritually by the people you are surrounded with, you will always stay at the same level as the people you are surrounded with. Now, if you're surrounded by people who know Jesus way better than you, that's a great situation. But most of us are surrounded by people who are in roughly the same place as we are. If you are here and you're not a Christian, maybe you come to church once a year, maybe you go to Mass you know, every Sunday, but that's about it. You are surrounded by people who are doing that same thing. And if you want to let Jesus come in and do what only he can do, you have to say, I'm going to run past the people around me. Now, that doesn't mean you judge them. You don't say, oh, I'm better than you or anything like that. And if you run ahead of them, a lot of them, you'll end up pulling with them. But you have to say, I'm going to try some things that are not just what the people around me are doing. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, that might, for you, just look like starting the journey with Jesus, saying, Jesus, I don't know if I have a relationship with you. I ask you to forgive my sins. I ask you to be my Savior. I ask you to be my Lord. I'm going to do my best to try to live my life for you, and I hand over my life to you. That's as simple as it can be, and then you come talk to somebody, and then you can get baptized, and then you can join a church, and all those kinds of things. But it has to start with you making a decision to make Jesus your personal Lord and Savior. And if you're not surrounded by people like that, that's going to feel like running ahead of all the people around you. That dynamic doesn't go away. It always stays that way for our whole life. As if you want to let Jesus do what only he can do, you have to start looking beyond what you see immediately around you. Second thing, you got to be willing to climb trees. And what I mean by that is, it is critical to be willing to look silly. As silly as you would think it looked to see a full, you know, suit businessman climbing up a tree in public, you know, in downtown Madison, as ridiculous as that would look today, that's exactly as ridiculous as it looked at the time. Zacchaeus embarrassed himself climbing up this tree. Whatever next step 
you need to take in your relationship with Jesus, it is likely going to be something that you will fear makes you look silly. If you've never been to a small group before, if you've never joined a small group, there's a part of you that goes, if I join that small group, people are going to know it's my first small group, and I'm probably going to say something stupid and look silly. Guess what? Your small group leader is going to do the best job they can to try to help you not feel silly, but you're probably going to feel silly at some point. That's okay. If, you've, if you need counseling and you've never been to counseling before, there's a part of you that says, ah, it feels so, I feel like it looks silly and stupid to go to counseling. I don't want to do that. you got to embrace the silly. If you've never talked to a pastor about something you're dealing with, a mentor, whatever, whatever the next step is, you will generally feel like you look silly in the process. Just look silly. Embrace the fascination of what will happen if you're willing to look silly. And then lastly, expect muttering. What I mean by that is don't let critics hold you back. Remember, all the crowd mutters against Zacchaeus hanging out with Jesus. I have never seen somebody start to let Jesus do what he came to do in their life without people very close to them trying to hold them back. Oh man, it happens every time. It happens with spouses. It happens with siblings. It happens with parents. People start getting intimidated. They go, what are you trying to do? You're getting all spiritual. What are you trying to prove? Who are you trying to be? I got a friend right now who became a Christian like a year ago and he is getting so much pushback from his family. And they like believe in God too. But they're judging him and saying, you think you're better than us now and blah, 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 blah. Anytime you take a step forward, you are going to have people muttering against what happened. And you say, I'm just going to do it. I'm going to say the haters are going to hate. And you're going to pray that the people muttering against what God is doing in your life are going to be the people who come join you later. Let your fascination in Jesus and what He can do in you be stronger than your fear. Run ahead of the crowd, climb trees, expect muttering. One story real quick to close. This is a story that demonstrates this point. If you let Jesus do what he came to do in you, you'll find him doing what he came to do through you. I got a good friend named Andy, and he said specifically to use his name. He said, listen, I think I want you to use my name in this story because I got to continue to work on being transparent and being who I am in Christ. So Andy showed up a year ago in our Forgiven and Free ministry that I help lead. It's a ministry for people struggling with sexual addiction. It's one of the things I'm most passionate about Day one, sitting in this small group, Andy's sitting in the circle, he's a senior in high school, and um, we're going around the table saying, hey, why'd you decide to join the group? You know, what kind of, what brought you to this point? And Andy goes, I think this group is stupid. I don't want to be here. My parents are making me be here. And I wish I could say, man, Jesus is about to do something amazing. But I was like, oh, gosh. This is not going to go well. I had no hope for him. I had no faith for him. I was not excited about this moment. I was like, he doesn't even want to be here. But over the next maybe six months or so, God started doing amazing things. The guys in the group, this is not about me. I feel like I hardly did anything. But the guys in the group started investing in him, hanging out with him outside of the group, taking him under their wing, um, you know, eating food together, all that kind of thing, and his heart started to soften towards God. I mean, I think he believed in God before that, but he was not walking with God at all. He had no interest in church, no interest in really walking the Christian life. But his heart started to soften towards God. He started getting excited about it, and his, he, um, 
just completely changed. And I was like, wow, Jesus just did an amazing thing. But I was not prepared for the fact that because Andy let God start working in him, God started working through him. He, started, he graduated high school. A bunch of his friends from high school went to the University of Osh, uh, UW at Oshkosh. None of them are Christians. And he started hanging out with them. And they were like, dude, you talk about Jesus all the time. And he was like, yeah, I know, I know, I know. All this stuff happened in my life. And they're like, well, what happened? So they, he starts talking to them, and they start reading the Bible together. And those guys start reading the Bible on their own. And they start getting interested in church. And he's been, for the last six months, driving up to the University of Oshkosh like every weekend to try to minister to these guys that God's doing amazing things through this. Now, if you had told me that that was going to happen a year ago, when Andy was like, I don't want to be here. I think church is stupid. I think this group is stupid. I'd be like, you are out of your mind. There was no part of me that thought that was possible. But when you let Jesus come and work in you, you will find him working through you. Now, I am not saying God is going to make you drive 90 minutes to Oshkosh every weekend. This is not the point of the story. And the point of the story is not even to say, oh, you need to go do evangelism all the time. Although, you know, I'm a big fan of that. But what I'm saying is that people being used by God to make an impact on the people around them are people who have let God work in them. Whatever you let God do in you is going to spill out. I mean, that's literally how the story ended. Remember? Zacchaeus stood up and said, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I've cheated anybody of anything, I'll pay back four times the amount. Can you imagine as the months go by, people walk into this town, they go into the poor area, and there's some impoverished lady, you know, eating her meal off a silver platter. And they're like, where did you get that? And she's like, Zacchaeus gave it to me. They're like, why? She's like, he met this guy, Jesus, and everything changed. Who looks good in that story? Jesus. There's some, you know, shanty and somebody walks in and there's some poor person sitting on a $3,000 ornate couch. And they're like, where did you get this couch? And he's like, Zacchaeus, he gave it to me. And they're like, why? And he's like, I don't know, he met Jesus and everything changed. Jesus starts ministering through Zacchaeus. And history outside of the Bible actually um, makes it clear that what likely happened is that Zacchaeus became one of the prominent leaders of the early church. He became one of the most influential people of the early church because he let Jesus work in him and Jesus just kept on working through him. There is more at stake in you letting Jesus work than just your own life, than just your own heart. So let me pray. Invite the band back up and just pray that, that God will give you some courage and some willingness to say yes to this. God, I thank you for everybody here. I thank you for all the love you have for us. God, I thank you that you can do more in us in a moment than what we could do on our own in a lifetime. And God, I pray that we would all adopt the mindset that we are going to, for the rest of our lives, just keep letting you work. That we would not desire to be a finished product this side of heaven. That we would say, God, keep working, keep changing, keep shaping, keep growing, keep making me more like Jesus. Don't slow down. Speed up. Do the things you came to do. And I ask that we would continually give over 
more control of our hearts and minds and life to who you are. And God, as we sing this song to you now, I ask that we would um, see clearly your mercy and grace in our lives through the gift of your Son, Jesus. Amen.